Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, the second March for Life since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We will march until abortion is unthinkable. We'll take a look at the lives saved as a result of the Dobbs decision. State-level abortion data proves that pro-life laws are working and the abortion industry is catching on. We'll also look at the challenges. A proposed constitutional amendment would undo everything I have attempted to do for 28 years in the area of life. We'll hear from Focus on the Family's Jim Daly on the brutal reality of Planned Parenthood's agenda. They have one sale to make to you, and that's to terminate the life of the child for $600. They do not want to incentivize you having that child. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be back with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and in Seattle on 820 AM, The Word. You can catch the stream of my program via our website at kpdq.com or through our station app available for your portable device. Just do a quick search for KPDQ in the App Store. Thanks for joining us. We'll start in the nation's capital and the March for Life, the second event held since the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. The event received conspicuously little media coverage, given that it's the largest annual human rights demonstration in the world. The theme this year, with every woman, for every child. This past Monday marked the actual anniversary of the Roe decision. 51 years and 65 million lives, a painful trail of tears. I addressed the anniversary on my program. 65 million lives have been lost because of the legal abortion regime ushered in by Roe versus Wade. Well, now more than a year and a half after Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, a decision overturning Roe states uh, are publishing helpful reporting data showing how the Roe reversal has affected efforts to protect the unborn. So far, 32 states have reported 4,240 legal abortions in 2022, an estimated decrease of 31,951 from 2021. Well, this uh, sample includes a wide variety of state laws protecting life from conception when a heartbeat is detected or after the first trimester. Well, on the flip side, other states passed new laws promoting abortion with taxpayer funding and created other legal protections to make abortion even more accessible. Unfortunately, some pro-abortion states that actively recruit women from out of state to obtain abortions like California, New Mexico and New York haven't yet reported their 2022 totals. But others like Colorado, Illinois, Kansas and Washington that neighbor pro-life states have reported providing good insight 
into the impact out-of-state travel has had on abortion totals. Well, in 2022 data that shows that an 8% decrease in the abortion rate in 32 states, the abortion rate that calculates how many women of reproductive age are getting abortions, would indicate that fewer women chose abortion in those states, even with the option to travel out-of-state to get an abortion. Well, these preliminary findings track with a study from the Institute of Labor Economics that found states with pro-life laws saw an increase of 32,000 births due to the impact of those laws. Well, as expected, in every state that enforced a heartbeat or life-at-conception law, abortions went down. In every state that allowed abortion at 15 weeks or later, abortions increased. With Vermont, which allows abortions at any point in pregnancy, the only exception that saw abortion totals decrease. Well, Texas saw the single largest decrease in abortions at 33,572, each a distinct individual created in the image of God, with nine other states reporting a decrease of 1,500 abortions or more. And despite Florida enforcing a 15-week limit since uh, July of 2022, abortions there increased by 2,700. That's likely due to Alabama, Georgia, and other southern states enforcing much more protective laws. Well, the weakness of the 15-week limit law is what prompted Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to sign the Heartbeat Protection Act of 2023. And even though Kansas has a history of passing pro-life laws, it still allows abortions through 22 weeks and saw an increase of more than 4,000 abortions driven largely by Oklahoma and Texas residents traveling to Kansas. Kansas demonstrates the direct impact a constitutional right to abortion can have on a state, prohibiting it from passing strong laws to protect the unborn. Well, contrary to media narratives, the 2022 state reports also show how important pro-life laws are to protecting the health of both unborn children and their mothers. Pennsylvania, which allows abortion through 24 weeks, reported 469 abortion complications. That's an increase of 45 percent from 2021. The majority of those complications were fetal tissue remaining in the uh, uterus after an incomplete abortion, which is most common with chemical abortions. And that should tell you something about about the debate now swirling around the use of chemical uh, abortions. Conversely, Arizona, which had a pro-life governor in 2022 seeking to enforce new pro-life laws after Roe fell, saw a significant decrease in the number of abortions due to maternal medical conditions. Arizona also reported only eight abortion complications compared with more than 400 reported in Pennsylvania. And despite the welcome success of pro-life laws in reducing abortion in certain states, many hurdles stand in the way of pro-life laws effectively saving innocent unborn lives and protecting women's health. The primary obstacle is the lawlessness of the administration and the support it receives from activist pro-abortion governors. The Biden administration is illegally performing abortions at Department of Veterans Affairs facilities in pro-life states and flying service members around the country to get elective abortions as well. Pro-abortion states are also working overtime to publicly flout federal and state laws by mailing chemical abortion pills into pro-life states and providing legal coverage for shady abortionists to do so. Well, thankfully, there are two important cases pending at the U.S. Supreme Court that can address those issues. The first will determine whether the Food and Drug Administration is able to put politics above science and allow women to legally receive dangerous chemical abortion pills in the mail without ever seeing a physician for an ultrasound or health screening. The other involves a case in which the administration is attempting to use a decades-old law that simply requires hospitals to screen all patients presenting 
moving to an emergency room to force pro-life states to perform unnecessary abortions. Fortunately, the law makes clear that both pregnant women and their unborn children are to be screened and thus cannot be used as a mandate on states to perform so-called life-saving abortions. State-level abortion data proves that pro-life laws are working and the abortion industry is catching on. Now is the critical time to ensure that the promise of the Dobbs decision is fully realized by enforcing existing federal laws that prohibit mail-order abortions, and that is now being considered, or soon will, by the U.S. Supreme Court. And while 2022 was the year we celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade, 2023 saw several more states passing and begin enforcing new pro-life legislation, and now, in 2024, will be the year of promoting the rule of law and good health care for both women and their unborn children. Well, as I mentioned, the March for Life took place on Friday in Washington, D.C., and while some headlines read hundreds attended, and that, of course, is accurate, but it was actually thousands who attended. It is the largest human rights event in the world, but it's always undercounted for reasons I don't think I need to explain. Some of the signs that were there I appreciated. One simply said, have the spine to defend the humankind. Another, America runs on life. Another sign, a real feminist chooses life. One sign read, can we at least protect this border? Another wrote, our salvation began with an unplanned pregnancy. One sign read, their rights don't end where your comfort begins. Another sign simply read, Americans are born to be free if only they were free to be born. One sign said, would it bother us more if they used guns? Very clever signs. I will not stay silent so that you can stay comfortable. And a sign simply read, how can there be too many children? That's like saying there are too many flowers. I noted a number of states where life-protecting measures are now the law of the land. But there are other states where the pushback against measures protecting the dignity of unborn human life is significant and ominous. We'll turn now to Bill Bunkley, my colleague on Faith Talk 760 AM, in Tampa. You may or may not be aware of it, but a group of very extreme pro-abortion activists have managed to get the necessary number of signatures to put on the November 2024 presidential ballot a proposed constitutional amendment that would undo everything that's been done for decades in the pro-life movement would undo everything I have attempted to do for 28 years in the area of life in the halls of Tallahassee. It is an amendment that says, if adopted by more than 60% of those that vote in November, that an abortion can occur all the way up to the moment of birth. That's right, right here in the free state of Florida. Folks, right now, There's two things that I've been asking you to pray about. We are waiting for the Florida Supreme Court in a couple of areas. One area is we have been waiting for the Florida Supreme Court for weeks now to rule on the constitutionality of the two pro-life bills that myself and many others worked on the last two years. Two years ago, it was a 15-week abortion ban. Then we did a six-week abortion ban. And the 15-week abortion ban is, in effect, pending the Supreme Court telling us about something called the right to privacy, which you probably know 
about that. But we certainly are waiting for that decision. There's another decision. The language that's in this proposed Florida constitutional amendment, I believe it's confusing. I believe it's broad, more than one area. And so our attorney general and others have filed amicus briefs because we are waiting because the last step standing behind this constitutional amendment to be able to kill babies all the way up to the moment of birth right here in Florida is the Florida Supreme Court. And prayerfully, we hope they will rule that the language is misleading and therefore it can't be on the ballot in 2024. But remember that God's sovereign the rule of this world is against life. All of that goes into our consideration. But, and by the way, they went out on the streets. You know, they pay petitioners, getting petitions at the post office, wherever they're going. And they said that they turned it around deceitfully, saying like this was a conservative principle that we want. This is a less government bill. Well, you, they went to conservative areas. The signature gatherers allege that this was a conservative bill because it calls for less government, you know, in the lives of uh, women, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a lot of Christian folk and conservatives that signed this thing and didn't realize they were signing to kill babies all the way up to the moment of birth. I hope, pray, the Supreme Court of Florida will overturn it. Coming up, the brutal reality of Planned Parenthood's agenda. They have one sale to make to you, and that's to terminate the life of the child for $600. They do not want to incentivize you having that child. Focus on the family's Jim Daly when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. This work, the work of the pro-life cause, is sobering and oftentimes heartbreaking. There are plenty of voices today, including some on the right, who are encouraging the Republican Party to give up on the issue. Or if not give up altogether, at least go soft or go silent. But when you look at the pro-abortion lobby and their real agenda, let's just say we cannot give up. Focus on the Family's Jim Daly was a guest of Greg Seltz on WAVA in the nation's capital. People really need to look factually at what's going on. Think of going into a Planned Parenthood clinic and asking for help for baby formula, crib, diapers. They're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. They, yeah. they have one sale to make to you, and that's to terminate the life of the child for $600. They do not want to incentivize you having that child. Because they lose financially. I don't even know why they're allowed at the table for the debate. It's so selfish in what they're attempting to do. Right. And, uh, you know, you talk to women that have gone through the procedure. It's cold, sterile, very impersonal. The doctor sometimes doesn't even talk to the patient. And I, I just think what a contrast. So the very thing that they're accusing the pro-life community of is, in fact, what they do, which is to right. offer one option. Do they really care about that woman? I say no. 
And then you look at what these great clinics are doing and the, the legal pressure, the political pressure that they put them under, the hoops they make them jump through these uh, pregnancy resource centers is ridiculous. And they're providing so much help. And I would encourage the Christian community, Stan, like you and your wife, volunteer, support, go in, help these women, find places for them to stay. You know, the, the data, Greg, is so clear. If a woman, thinking of terminating her pregnancy, she, most women will say, if I had one person that would have helped me, I would have chosen life for my baby. That's yeah, it. That's Be that person to help. And why not? That's, that's what the Christians in the first century would have done. That's exactly right. And Focus has got a 20-year-old uh, ultrasound program, right? And it's success in helping mothers choose life. Yeah, I'm proud to say we were the pioneers of doing that. We right. uh, got started <laughs> before Knights of Columbus. And, you know, we just came up with the idea of supplying the, the ultrasound machine to the pregnancy resource centers. We've hit uh, over half a million, half a million babies saved now. Uh, and again, it's just been the, the joy of our lives. There's so many more ripples to that option ultrasound now with using social media to guide and direct a woman to a clinic for a consultation. Oh, 200,000 appointments have been made through that My Choice Network app. Mm. And then uh, from there, we're building a national database of waiting parents that want to adopt a baby, pre-screened, et cetera, working with 800 adoption agencies. It doesn't exist today, but we want to be able to connect. You know, they say about a million abortions occur every year and about a million couples want to adopt an infant. Can we not just match them up and see just if we can get more effective? If you really want to stand out there on a limb, if you're a pro-abortion person and say, I prefer to kill a baby than to place that baby in an adoption, then then go for it. Let's see how that rolls with the culture. I think you well, lose. Well, yeah, I think you lose, and I think that that spirit, if that takes hold in our culture, we lose. We lose as a yeah, people. There's just definitely. no doubt about that. What I would tell people today is, man, if we could just get the government out of the way so that the church again could be unleashed, so that it could just serve these these girls who are in trouble, the families that are in need. Uh, but like you said, there's so many hoops that they go through. And then the cause the punishment now of whether you're a, a Christian adoption agency, et cetera, et cetera. We, we've got to actually push back on that, don't we? Absolutely. It's ludicrous. I can remember being in high school, playing football. I uh, came to Christ through fellowship of Christian athletes. Hey. Now you look at that and you look at how like FCA and other Christian clubs on high school campuses or college campuses are being marginalized. And I'm telling you, you get this letter. I've seen them. You get a letter from the ACLU saying you have got to cease and desist having students come to this Christian. And I've come to the conclusion that the secularists in this country would prefer that a 15, 16-year-old orphan kid like me would do much better being hooked to drugs, sleeping with women, and headed toward prison than heaven forbid they should become a Christian and try to live a life that is worth living. And I, I mean, it's just absurd. I, I seriously have come to that conclusion. Like they're so upset that people right. would talk, especially people in powers or in authoritative positions like a teacher, a football coach, et cetera, would have the constitutional ability to talk to a student about Christ. I mean, that cannot happen. It's weird. It's bizarre. What harm does it do to you? And why are you worried if somebody should say, yeah, I want to live a life that does not end me up in jail, that puts me in a better place to succeed in life, to have a good, loving marriage, to raise my children? I mean, doesn't that sound good? What right. is your problem? 
<laughs> well, so, you know, I mean, I'm sounding pretty gruff. You must have caught me in a bad mood. But to the no, point no, of no. getting government off our back, wow. Right. You want to help? Get out of the way. Because you look at prisons. My goodness, you can't go into a prison and proclaim Christ to people who are desperate, people on death row. You got to say, well, I know of an ancient book that really has a lot of good wisdom. I mean, but you can't say, hey, I believe in Jesus Christ. He saved my soul. He can do it for you. Would you like that done? Yeah. <laughs> and you can't, it's getting well, ridiculous. You, I mean, it's so bizarre. Well, and you're getting to the point, too, and that's why I want to focus, uh, actually turn a little bit, the life movement to the family movement, which is everybody knows that the family's the issue. Everybody knows that undergirding and empowering and, and, and giving, you know, uh, incentivizing family is the way to deal with all kinds of this stuff. But I was talking to Larry Elder on this program about a month ago, and he said, but we can't get the family on any platform, you know. And so, again, even the life issue, it's it's best dealt with with fathers and mothers who love their children. And we can try to keep those families together. We can support them in need, connect them to the, the institution of the family, grandmas and grandpas and all those kind of things. And that's what they're at war with us against. You know, they're at war with that notion. And that's where the problem is. And that's where I think the fight ultimately comes. Right. You're so right. And I mean, if you think about it, and I'm not a big conspiracy guy, but you start looking at what evil is doing in the world and those that cooperate with evil to accomplish something, it's becoming absurd. I mean, you look at corporate boardrooms and school PTAs, and you start just sensing this thing that's so anti-God. And I'm telling yeah. you, you, you remove godly character from this world, you end up with chaos, ugly right. fruit. Of Satan, I mean hatred and strife and murder and all kinds of chaos, and uh, you know it's right there in Scripture. And so, when you're looking at people of shalom, people of God's peace that want to deliver stability, and you look at the data, social science is careening right now. You got uh, Oh Kearney, the economist who wrote the book that the two parent privilege, and now you have. Dr. Brad Wilcox, who is a great researcher, confirming the data that says, yeah, the most stable families, guess what, are two-parent biological uh, mom and dad parents raising their kids. They're the most stable families. You start looking at the removal of a father from the home and the statistical measurement of what damage that does. 90% of runaways come from fatherless homes. 75% of teen drug addiction, fatherless home. You go right through the list. You cannot, with a straight face, make an argument for not defending the family, keeping families together. We need far more policies like Australia. If you've got kids in the home under 18, you've got to wait six months before you can get a divorce and go to counseling every week. Mandatory. I mean, that's awesome. I would well, say that that's, very that rarely would... about a government policy, but that's one I like. Coming up, more on life. We are potentially facing a time in American history where we are facing the evaporation of all of our values. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, 
She will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. As we witness how fast-changing culture has become, it's really hard to overstate how critical it is to continue the fight, to remain engaged on behalf of human life and human dignity. The stakes are high indeed. We'll turn now to Tim Gagline, also with Focus on the Family. Once again, here's Greg Seltz. This isn't just something we fight for for ourselves. We're fighting for this, this life view of life for the country, for everybody, everyone. Your life is that precious. And I Absolutely. think we're, we, we've are we been allowed to actually become branded as the extremists when I really think we're the ones who are, you know, we've got to fight back on that narrative, don't we? We, we do. You know, um, I have lived and worked in Washington, uh, Greg, for 35 years. And across 35 years, <clears throat> I've only missed three marches. And there have been marches that have been like a spring day. There have been marches where uh, we, you know, we thought it was you know, sort of like a monsoon. We've had rain, ice, wind, heavy snow, blizzards. We've had sub-zero temperatures. But there's something about the poignancy of the wickedness of the weather that matches the wickedness of abortion. Uh, right. And for those of us who are passionate, to your very point, Greg, that everybody matters that everybody counts, that there was never, not even one, insignificant person. We have to be in the streets. We have to remind people that we are here on a principle, uh, and it's a constitutional principle, that we have got to vanquish this idea that somehow there are some people that don't matter. That's what this is all about. It absolutely is. And that's why I love the theme. So let's talk a little bit about the theme of this year's March with every woman for every child. And, you know, again, it's one of those themes where they try to caricature it again as as not a caring theme. And in reality, it's the most holistic, beautiful theme you could have. So talk about, you know, the theme. How does that grab you? And and, you know, what is this going to mean as we try to take it to the culture uh, that is pro-death in a lot of ways? Well, I'm glad you said that because the late great writer Tom Wolfe said that we are potentially facing a time in American history where we are facing what he called the evaporation of all of our values. And, you know, it was not long ago in the history of our constitutional republic where if you would have had a description of of what abortion is, its impact on women, its impact on children, it would have been unconscionable, unthinkable, that anywhere in the United States that it would have been, in air quotation marks, constitutionally uh, protected. This may be 50 years old, Greg, but that is a snap of the fingers in the history of our country. And so emphasizing the centrality of women, the centrality of children, uh, the centrality uh, of, of what it means to be truly empathetic and compassionate. I think it's a brilliant theme, and I am so pleased that it's the theme of the Pro-Life March this year. You know, folks, I, I think the one thing that we've got to do a better job of is occasionally exposing 
the caricature as well as the lies of the folks that were battling on this issue. Because if you think about it, the pro-choice movement hides behind this euphemism that is providing somehow medical care. It's not providing medical care. It's dismissing a child. And and it's anti-family. It's anti-mother. It's anti-father. Folks, if you're anti-all of that, this is chaos for the culture, and so what we're trying to do is bring back a, an, a, an empathy and a, and, and a joy and a, and a commitment to life, even when life is a struggle. What are some of the other yeah. themes that you've had in the past that really got you, that, that made you go, yeah, that's why we march? You know, Greg, there is a theme, one of the years, that emphasized just the sheer enormity of the impact of abortion in the United States. And that particular year, I remember speaking at a pro-life forum in Georgia. And I remember saying that at that point, we had in the United States since 1973 seen the abortion of 65 million innocent human beings. And uh, picking up on the theme of the pro-life march in Washington, I said that is the equivalent of every citizen living in every state west of the Mississippi, plus the entire country of Italy. And I remember the audible gasp in the room uh, when when I gave the sheer numbers. The enormity of what has happened just since 1973 in our nation, thematically, we have got to continue to remind people that we're talking about millions and millions. It it, it really, it, it almost defies the imagination, doesn't it? Coming up, abortion is bad. Abortion kind of fosters this anti-woman society. So the idea that, that pregnancy is a disease, for example, is deeply embedded in the concept of abortion. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment, stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. We have just marked the two-year anniversary of the release of the Dobbs decision, the decision that overturned Roe versus Wade. It was the end of a 50-year battle. When the decision was made public, it was a bit surreal. Truthfully, it was hard for many of us to believe that it actually happened. But it did. It actually happened. And now we continue in this next phase of the challenge, persuading the American people, persuading women of the empirically verifiable truth that abortion is harmful to them, to the communities in which they live, and of course, to the innocent unborn human lives it takes. Eric Metaxas turned to Alexandra DeSanctis. She's the co-author of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. What are some of the arguments for why abortion in fact harms women? 
Sure. So we, we kind of break this down into two categories in the book. We talk about first women who've actually had an abortion and the way that abortion harms them. So we go through the many types of short-term, long-term physical complications that can come about as a result of abortion. And there are plenty, although the other side would like to, to claim otherwise. And we also talk about the psychological after effects of abortion. And unfortunately, we don't hear about this very much because abortion supporters like to, to quiet this down. First of all, many women don't really want to have an abortion, right? They do it because they feel like it's their only option or someone's pressuring them or they don't, don't have any other choice, don't have any support. And they find themselves, you know, regretting this deeply for many, many years after the fact, ashamed to talk about it. You know, oftentimes they suffer from drug abuse, alcohol abuse, even suicidal ideation, um, all these horrible psychological complications as a result of having had an abortion. Um, so that's the women who've had an abortion. We also talk about how abortion kind of fosters this anti-woman society. So the idea that pregnancy is a disease, for example, is deeply embedded in the concept of abortion, that a child doesn't belong inside his or her mother, right, or the child is an enemy. All this kind of fosters a culture where the male mode of being human, you know, not becoming pregnant, is the ideal or the normal mode of being human. And the, the fact that women become pregnant or have children is somehow lesser than or strange or something we need to kind of suppress and, and put, put aside or at least be able to put aside when it's inconvenient or problematic. I mean, it's so sick when you, when you put it that way, that idea of trying to divorce a woman from one of the most beautiful aspects of what makes her a woman uh, in the image of God. It's an amazing thing to, to be at that place uh, and to be giving vent to that as though somehow that's a legitimate point of view. Yeah, it's a really unfortunate situation. And I think it, we, we certainly as pro-lifers shouldn't minimize the fact that, you know, pregnancy having childbearing is a unique thing women have to deal with, right? Contrary to uh, what some might say today, men don't become pregnant, right? Only women become pregnant. It's a unique thing that women go through and have to deal with. And it it certainly causes health problems sometimes or inconveniences or difficulties. Uh, but the answer to those difficulties is not to say that we should kill unborn human beings, right? The answer is to have a society that's more responsive to the needs of women that, you know, encourages men to step up. And unfortunately, I think abortion has helped to normalize male abandonment, right? Rather than saying that men should step up and support women and children, particularly when there are unplanned pregnancies, we've just said, oh, well, if a man doesn't want to step up, women can just go have an abortion, right? And so women are left to choose between either being abandoned and on their own or going and committing an act of violence against their own child in order to save themselves. And we're supposed to believe this is female empowerment. And obviously this all comes from the sexual revolution, this idea that we can somehow divorce sex from marriage and family and childbearing. But that's obviously where this has led us. Those ideas have led us to a place where men are encouraged not to be responsible, not to be men. Let's be blunt. At the same time, they're encouraging women not to be women by having an abortion. Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. And you're exactly right to point to the sexual revolution. I think for the last year, we've talked about, you know, how do we prevent abortion? How do we as pro-lifers kind of step up and support women? What kind of laws do we need to try and prevent abortion? But the root of it is that we live in a culture where casual sex is normal, right? Where unplanned pregnancy is normal, where male abandonment is basically accepted, right? And in that context, women are always going to think they need abortion, or some women are always going to think they need abortion. And so unfortunately, I think to get rid of abortion, ultimately, we're going to have to get to the root of all of that and untangle all those lives. That idea that abortion harms women, it seems to me that strategically, as we try to make it less normal for people to have abortions and, and try to make people understand that it's a bad thing, we have to be clear about how it really harms women. In other words, if, if you're thinking about having an abortion, you need to be aware 
of what this might do to you in the future. You need to know, you need to hear the stories so that you understand there is very likely a high price. This is not like getting a mole removed. No, and unfortunately, the abortion industry, promoters of abortion, abortion advocates, they really have a lock on what our culture hears, as you pointed out. And so women, even when you go to get an abortion, abortion uh, providers have lobbied for decades now not to have to tell women about the physical and psychological risks of abortion. They sue in court constantly not to have to give the kind of information women would really need in order to give informed consent. And you talk about, you know, hearing stories of abortion on Oprah. All we hear is stories of women who are so glad they had an abortion. Or even sometimes you'll see these articles of women saying, I didn't have an abortion and I wish I had, right, as their living child is out here in the world. And it's it's heartbreaking and awful and, you know, horrific that this sentiment is out there and normal and celebrated. But if a woman comes along and says, actually, I had an abortion. I wish I hadn't. It you know, ruined my life or it's been awful. I wish I, I, wish I hadn't done it. Uh, women like that are sidelined by abortion supporters. As much as they talk about you know, sharing your story of having an abortion, they really only mean the story of being happy that you did it. I, I believe, at least I, I have the optimism to believe that this is changing uh, and that because of the, the change in the media landscape, stories can get out that weren't able to get out in previous years. But I want to ask you also, you talk in the book about how the issue of abortion has harmed politics and harmed the rule of law. Talk about that for a moment. Yeah, so we definitely, one chapter we dedicate to uh, talking about the history of Roe v. Wade. And essentially what we talk about there is how the justices who ended up in the majority, the seven justices who who wrote um, Roe v. Wade, they knew before they wrote that ruling, before they even heard arguments, that they were planning to legalize abortion. They wanted to do that all along. They had a political agenda, an ideological agenda. If you go back and look at the documents, as many scholars have done, they thought that they could just settle this for the entire country. Uh, They didn't think they had an obligation to read the Constitution and see what was in it. They worked backwards from the conclusion they wanted to reach. And that's why I think, you know, the Dobbs decision does a a really good job of, of showing this if you go and read it. But the decision was not real. It was not grounded in anything. It was not legal reasoning. It was a political, ideological decision masquerading as law. So we go through all that. And and we talk, too, about our politics and how, in particular, the Democratic Party is just totally enthralled to the abortion lobby now. And and we go into a bit of the history of, of how that happened. But the conclusion we draw is, look, this is a sad situation for Americans, right? That we don't we have a choice between one political party that supports this grave moral evil and another political party that doesn't, right? And how great would it be for us as Americans to have a real choice between parties or politicians, all of whom know that abortion is a grave moral evil? And unfortunately, we just don't have that. Coming up, the pro-life movement looks ahead. I like to think of it as a kind of all hands on deck moment. More with Alexandra DeSantis when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. AM Radio provides always-on news, sports, talk, traffic, and weather reports. And it's also a vital service that provides important emergency information when your community needs it most. Tell Congress you need AM Radio to stay in your car. Because when cell phones and the Internet are down, this free emergency service is critical. And when you don't have electricity, radio in the car is often your only lifeline. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM Radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we pass the two-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, we have hit something of a reset button, where the political landscape on this issue is markedly different in, say, Texas, relative to my home state of Oregon. Let's pick up with a few more minutes of Eric Metaxas with Alexandra DeSanctis. What does the pro-life movement 
do next? Where, where do we go from here? Well, I, I like to think of it as a kind of all hands on deck moment, right? We need both law and culture. Can't We can't just be focused on changing policy. We can't just be focused on building pregnancy resource centers or staffing them. We have to think about it from, from all angles. And so I think we've seen great success over the last year that a, a number of states have passed pro-life laws that they've wanted all along that they, they weren't able to get in place because of Roe. We've seen some states in the middle come up with, you know, something like a 12-week bill or a 15-week bill, which is, is certainly not ideal. And we hope they'll keep having more pro-life laws over time. But there's definitely been a lot of positive progress at the state level. I think we need really a, a Republican party that's willing to step up and support pro-life laws vocally. You unfortunately see a lot of Republicans at the federal level um, who've called themselves pro-life now saying, you know, go talk to your state legislature. It's not my problem anymore. I don't even want to talk about it. You know, Roe is over. And I think we need a really different message from the top level. We need Republican candidates who are committed to talking about being pro-life in a compassionate, convincing way, supporting pro-life policy. So I think it's going to have to be a, a kind of wide-ranging strategy. Just uh, to, to help us understand what happened a year ago when the Dobbs decision came down and Roe v. Wade was overturned, what are some states, in other words, Roe v. Wade uh, found, you know, this phantom right in the Constitution for abortion for every state. Okay, that's overturned. So suddenly the states get to decide. They get to argue amongst themselves about this issue. So what are some of the success stories in states around the country? I was talking to Abby Johnson recently, who was telling me that in Texas, it's virtually impossible to get an abortion. And I, I, I really couldn't even believe what I was hearing. I thought, really? Is, is that possible? So what, what is Texas like now? And what other states do you know of where it is very difficult or if, if not impossible and illegal to get an abortion? So there are about, I would say, a little more than a dozen states between 12 and 20 states, you know, states like Texas, like you mentioned, Florida is another one, South Carolina, I believe Kentucky, but there are many, I don't know off the top of my head, most of them have rallied around um, heartbeat bills. So these are bills where a woman can't get an abortion after the point where a fetal heartbeat can be detected during an ultrasound. And that means somewhere around between six and eight weeks of pregnancy. And so typically most women find out they're pregnant a little bit before that. So there is still some time to have an abortion, but you're almost always not going to be getting an abortion before that point. Um, so in these states and in, in a few others, abortion is essentially illegal after conception. And so I think it, it is true that in, in plenty of states, women, unless they're getting some kind of mail order abortion from a, you know, an abortion provider online, they're mostly not getting abortions anymore. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. You can listen to the entire interview with Alexandra and Eric at ChristianOutlook.com. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to a friend and send them to ChristianOutlook.com. Encourage them to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin, producer David Pouchon, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. But it flew away from her reach, so she ran away in her sleep.